Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to get verses 7 to 13. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in the pew back in front of you. And Revelation is at the very end of your Bible. And like I said, we're in chapter 3. Going to be in verses 7 to 13 as we've been journeying through the seven letters that Jesus speaks through the Apostle John to seven churches in present day Turkey. And we've been looking at these letters because we want to understand dangers that Jesus believed would, would uh, haunt, if you will, the church or, or dangers that the church must be made aware of in order to follow Jesus Christ that are still dangerous for us today, 2,000 years later. So about 14, 15 years ago now, I had the opportunity to hop on a plane and fly to Germany, joining a team of about seven students or recently graduated from college students uh, to spend a year in Germany. And our the whole goal of that year was to just minister to other college students telling them about Jesus, growing them in their faith, and just releasing them to then uh, be used by God to minister to others. If you've ever visited a new place, it's kind of exciting, isn't it? You get to see all the new sights, all the new sounds, get to eat new food. I mean, just, I was excited as a 22-year-old of what this year will hold. I remember being in uh, the office that we had, uh, and we were kind of seated around in a circle, and they were telling us that the primary way that we would seek to share the gospel was to go to the local cafeteria, and it was so crowded that people just had to share tables. I'm not sure if you've ever been to a restaurant like that, or, or been in an environment where it doesn't matter, you, you have to share a table with people you don't know. So our primary goal was to go and grab food, find a table, ask somebody if we could sit next to them in order to strike up a conversation and see if we could share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. I remember on one particular day, uh, walking into this cafeteria with my team leader, and, and it's kind of a nerve-wracking thing because you're not only sharing the good news of Christ with a stranger, but you're doing so with a language barrier. So I remember uh, getting to this table and in our broken German, we asked, hey, is there a seat open? And he goes, yeah, you, you can sit there. You know, just like we can tell a foreigner easily by our their broken English, they can tell that we were foreigners by our broken German. And so immediately he, he switches to English and he says, you're not with that English group that comes around and sits down sitting with people simply to share about Jesus, are you? I don't know how you feel in that moment, but like I had a frog in my throat. Kind of, you could tell that, that it wasn't a simple question. It was one of those like, they're annoying, they always do this, and please don't be them. I'm not sure how you'd respond in that moment, but I, I know for me it was kind of terrifying to think like, what do I say? What do I do? Finally, after stuttering a bit, was finally able to just kind of spit out that, yes, we are that. 
which the rest of the meal, my team leader and I just stared at each other in our food, eating our food, because we're too afraid to talk to this person about Jesus. Again, I wonder if you were in that kind of a position where someone looked at you and said, are you one of them? Are you one of those Jesus people? I wonder how you would respond in that situation. Because that, in all honesty, that's, that's kind of the trajectory that we are on as a country. It's kind of one of the things that we as a people need to be thoughtful about the way in which we would respond. Because in that moment, I was more afraid of how people viewed me than I was about honoring Jesus Christ. That's the danger for us today, isn't it? That's the very danger that Jesus is going to reveal to us this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 3. And as we see that danger play out, this, this danger of of longing for our comfort rather than boldly declaring the good news of Jesus. What John and, and Jesus through John is going to show us this morning is that for us to have steadfastness, for us to stand steadfast in the Lord and not like choke on our words in that moment. For us to have steadfastness in the midst of trial is only going to come by resting not in your predetermined ideas, not in the three sentences that you've memorized, but by resting in the strength of our Savior. By being reminded of who Jesus is, by holding fast to who Jesus is, and then through that, trusting in the promises that he gives if we do indeed hold fast. So with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. And as we do, would you stand with me as we read God's word as a way of just honoring who the Lord is and that he is speaking to us right now. What a benefit and a gift that is to us. So Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel in the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I loved you. Because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. 
and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So as we, uh, as I said earlier, we're walking through these seven letters that Jesus speaks to John to these churches, and this is letter number six that, that Jesus is now speaking to the church in Philadelphia. That's not Pennsylvania, which they could probably receive their own letter, couldn't they? But not to that church, but rather to the church of Philadelphia in Asia Minor, which is in Turkey today. And as we, uh, if you do any research on the church in Philadelphia, you'll recognize that this city is known for their unity and their loyalty to the Roman Empire. They're known for their worship of the Roman god named Dionysus, who uh, was just uh, a god of wine and a god of pleasure. And this is a city, like many others, that was demolished by an earthquake. And outside of the city of Laodicea that we'll see next week, this is a city, like the rest, who needed the emperor's help to rebuild. And so in an effort to rebuild the city, they called Emperor Tiberius uh, or Caesar Tiberius to grant them finances to be able to rebuild bigger and better than ever. And so in a way to promote unity, in a way to honor the emperor, they actually renamed the city Neo, which is just means new, Neo Caesarea, new city of Caesar. And it's in the midst of that context that Jesus is speaking to the city that needs to be rebuilt, the city that longs for unity, and the city that is honoring Caesar, and often would honor Caesar like a god. And so you can just imagine if you hold back and no longer worship Caesar as God, but begin to worship Jesus as God. You can just imagine the kind of slander, the kind of uh, comments that would be said about you, the, the ways in which you would be belittled, the ways in which you would be canceled. Does that sound familiar at all? Like to follow Jesus instead of following the course of the world? gets you canceled. So how do we respond to that? Do we fight back? Thinking that if we just show our strength and our power, by some chance we win? Clearly, that's not the way of Christ. He gave himself up and laid down his life for us. Or, or do we, instead of fighting back, we just kind of give in and just say, whatever happens, and, and just give up? Yeah, that too is not the way of Christ, who is obedient to the point of death, obedient to the Father, even to the point of giving up his life. So how do we live and how do we respond in the midst of a culture that is telling us to live for Jesus is idiotic? It's just crazy. How do we stand fast in the midst of that? Well, Jesus is going to show us five truths. One truth that is about his power that we need to cling to. One truth that is the kind of power he longs and calls us to have. 
and in three promises of power that he gives to us if we actually hold fast to Christ. So let's look at these five things this morning. The first is sovereign strength. This word sovereign just means ruling over all things. That he, that God has control over everything. He rules everything from the past to the present to the future. There's not a single point in all of history that God does not have power. And we've got to remember that because that's the foundation to what Jesus declares about himself. Because look with me at verse 7. He says that he's right, you know, he tells John to write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia and notice what he wants them to know. He says, I want them to know the words of the Holy One. Now we've heard this word holy before, right? What does it mean? It just means that we are devoted entirely to God. And so Jesus is saying, the words of me, Jesus, whose life in totality of existence is entirely devoted to God. That's going to be incredibly important because as Greg Deal mentions in his commentary, this word holy is used over 20 times in the book of Isaiah. As we'll see in a moment, Isaiah is going to play an important backdrop to this passage. But Jesus just telling us that, that he is one who's dedicated entirely to the Father. But he's not just the holy one. Notice what he says next. He's also the true one. He's the true Messiah. So if you, if you read the first part of your Bible, you will see that God comes and he rescues this ragtag group of people out from under the Egyptian reign and rule. And as he brings them out of that, he eventually leads them to a land where he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And if you obey me, here's the blessing. But if you disobey, eventually I'm going to bring curse and the judgment. And after years and years and years and years and years of continual disobedience, we see finally God brings up the Assyrians to, to wipe out half of the nation, the nation of Israel, and then raise up the Babylonians to wipe out the southern part, the, the nation of Judah, as a way of punishment. And yet, in the midst of that, if you were to ever read the book of Isaiah, you will see that Isaiah both prophesies destruction, and he also promises a true Messiah to come and restore the people. So you begin to see, again, the, the backdrop of Isaiah, and, and this Messiah is not just any Messiah, he's the one who can restore them. And notice what Jesus says next. This Messiah has the key of David. Now, who's David? Well, David is the king over the entire nation. And towards the end of David's life, he goes to God and says, Hey, uh, I, would, I have this beautiful house. I want to make a house for you. God says, that, that, that's nice, but you're not going to do it. 
your kid is the Lord. But because you desire to honor me, I will honor you. And so from now on, there will always be a king from your line to be on the throne over God's people. And we get to Matthew 1 and we begin to see that this king who's coming to restore uh, centers and, and the two lines come together and they center on Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one from the line of David. He is the one king who rules over all of God's people. And now Jesus is saying that he holds the keys. Well, what do the keys do? There's two ways to get in my house. One is to break a window, and one is to actually use the key, right? To get in, to unlock, to, to open up. And Jesus says that he holds the key. He has the power of the kingdom of David to open and to allow people in. And there's no one that can stop him. There's no one that, that's what he says, who opens and no one will shut. And when he shuts the door, no one can open. You hear what he's saying about himself? That he is the only entrance into this kingdom that no matter what other people do, no matter what other people say, the only way into this kingdom is through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says that in John 14, doesn't he? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the best example I can think of it is if you've ever uh, watched a show or even a commercial that, that you know, there's a VIP party, you got a big bouncer at the door, you know, someone my size, or maybe a little bigger. So you got a bouncer at the door, right, keeping people out, and then you got a line of, of people there, and they're just they're just hoping to convince the bouncer that, that they can get in, right? And all of a sudden, the guest of honor walks up. And he walks to somebody in line and says, Come with me. And they get to the front and the bouncer's like, uh, the party's about you, but they're not on the list. Doesn't matter. They're with me. Uh, but, 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 doesn't matter. They're with me. They get in. Because this is my party. And I say, they get in. Church, that's what Jesus is saying. Eternal life is his party. It is a party where we worship and we praise and we honor him. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what the world says about you today. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow. What, what matters is that Jesus says, he's with me, she's with me, they get in. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. And that's our hope. That he is the entry into this eternal life, into this kingdom. And so if you're not a follower here this morning, a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is just offering that to you. All you have to do is just lay down your attempt. You know, if you're sitting in line, you're standing in line, think about all the ways to convince the bouncer, how, why they should let you in. So all of that now. And you go to Jesus, the guest of honor. So that means you. You're the only one to get me into the kingdom. I need you. I trust in you. That's an offer. 
to all of them. And it's because of the power that Jesus has that it should actually then strengthen us to live the day-to-day life in this world. That's what we see secondly, the kind of strength that we're called to have, and that is steadfast strength. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I, I know your works. Again, uh, time and time again, he's looking at these churches and he says, I know what you're doing. You know, you and I, like, we, we see a new building, like, oh, that's amazing. And she's like, yeah, I can see the faulty wiring behind that facade. I can see that the concrete wasn't laid, wasn't leveled before they put up the wall. He knows. He sees past all of this. And this is incredibly important because remember this city was demolished and they were rebuilt. And, and if you and I were to walk into this brand new rebuilt city, we'd walk around and man, this is impressive. This is awesome. He says, I see behind all of it. Knows their works. And in the middle of knowing their works, notice what he has done. He says that he set before them an open door. So if we go back to thinking about where Philadelphia is, it's actually this major city that is at a crossroads. And in the old times, the only way that you could really protect your city was to to build this massive wall around your city where you'd have these gates that open and close. And as there was danger lurking, you would close the gates. And and as peacetime reigned, you'd open the gates. And you see Jesus saying, I am the gatekeeper. I am the one that gets to open the gates wide so that you can come and that you can enjoy me. I am the one that opens the door and no one can shut that door. If you've ever seen pictures of uh, Checkpoint Charlie, anybody know what I'm talking about? Checkpoint Charlie is is the checkpoint in in, uh, the middle of Berlin, between East and West Berlin. There's this wall after World War II that they constructed to to divide East Germany from West Germany. If you've ever been there or seen photos, West Germany is beautiful and built up, and and the moment, like that wall's gone, but the moment you get to East Germany, you can tell, because everything looks like a prison. Gray, concrete, square buildings. You were in Berlin during the uh, 70s and 80s. The only way to get to the east side was to go through what they called Checkpoint Charlie, where you'd walk through and you'd uh, tell them why you're going in, how long you're going to be there, and then to come back out, you had to go right back through Checkpoint Charlie. And from what I hear, stories that if you had any money from Russia, you had to spend all of that because if you didn't, the moment you got to that checkpoint, you had to give it all back. They wanted to keep East Germany in East Germany. Now imagine if that was your life living in the, under the communistic regime of East Germany, and you're looking at this 
that if you're looking at your life and all the drab and dreariness and you see this wall and on the other side of the wall you can see beautiful buildings and hope and life the only thing you can imagine how do I get over that wall or how do I get through that checkpoint and Jesus says I've opened the checkpoints you can come you can experience the joy and the freedom. That's refreshing, isn't it? It's refreshing because we don't have to try to live for Christ on our own, or, or we don't, or we don't have to try to somehow fight our way through this world on our own. You know, sometimes it feels like living for Jesus, uh, it just feels like our world is upside down, doesn't it? It feels like the doors are shut when we try to live for Christ. And Jesus says that the doors aren't shut. They're open. And then he says, I know that you have but little power. He says, I know it's hard to live for me. I know the world is beaten and banging against you. And you feel weak. You feel beaten down. You feel uh, you feel like they're against you in every way, shape, and form, and, and, and especially in the midst of their power on display. We're in this beautiful new city, declaring how awesome they are, and you feel because I, I see that. And yet, with that little power, notice what they did. Says, yet you kept my word. Just imagine that. You're, you're walking through this new city. There's so many enticements around you, so many beautiful things. And you're like, I want to go there. I, I want to do that. And the community around you is pressuring you to, to conform to their ways. You're like, your way looks like it's winning. And yet, in the middle of that, they say, no, 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 no. My life is going to be built and based upon the word of God. They value the word of God. Church, do you value the word of God? Do you realize that there were men and perhaps women who gave their lives? William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake because he just wanted English-speaking people to read the Bible in their own language. And the church hated him for it. And the government around hated him for it. And they killed him. So you and I could have about 100 Bibles in this room. Yet pick up one. Do you value God's word? To see that it is so important in your life? It is greater than anything else in this world? How do we value God's word? We read it. We get to bed. On time. So we can wake up in the morning and spend time with Jesus in his word. Do you do that? So you have energy to dive into his word and be reminded that he's with you. That he doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. 
to be reminded of what really matters in a world that is so confusing. We run back to the word of God. But it's not just that they value or that they, they keep the word of God, but notice what else they keep. They, they have not denied his name. They value Jesus above all else. And there's so many things that this world has to offer. And they said, you know what? Uh, Jesus is more important than a show. Jesus is more important than money. Jesus is more important than a nice house. Jesus is more important than your team winning the World Series. Jesus is more important than anything else in your life that you're prioritizing. And so they're not denying the name of Christ. What does this look like? Well, when you go to work tomorrow, and people say, well, what did you do this weekend? Are you tell them about everything but how you went to church? To learn about God? Might that be a way you are denying Christ? When they look at you and they say, oh, are you one of those Christian people? Are you immediately like I was trying to backpedal and explain, oh, I'm not one of those Christian people, but I'm Now, for some of us, this is a real possibility that when it comes to standing up for your beliefs, even to the point that you might lose your job, are you a hypocrite that denied Christ or are you going to hold fast to Jesus? Denying Because if we hold fast in the way in which Jesus is calling us to, he gives us three promises. That will be true of us. And the first promise he gives us is switching strength, where he intervenes, uses his strength, and he actually switches it in love. Look at me at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. So pause for a moment. What's a synagogue? It's a place where Jews go and worship God. And the Jews are the, the people of God. In that first part of your Bible, who go and worship and who have the law of God and the word of God. If you were to look at their life, you're thinking that those are God's people. But what is Jesus just said? They say they say they're God's people, but they lie. Why do they lie? Because God's people are always about God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, and yet they killed him. They rejected him. And now Jesus is coming and saying, they act like they're on my side. They act like they're with me, but they're not. And to just wake us up, he doesn't just say that they're in this no man's land. He says, they are so far against me, they're actually doing the work of Satan. 
There's other ways in which we are doing the work of Satan. We think that we're following Jesus. We think we're doing what's right. When in reality, we're opposing God. God says, I can't do this. You can just imagine. They're, they're probably slandering this church. They're probably trying to destroy this church. This church might feel like the world is against them, that they're helpless. Maybe, maybe they just feel like they're a bunch of losers. And Jesus comes and says, they're not my people. You are my people. How refreshing is that? It's like he's saying you don't see the full picture. The full picture is that the people of God are the ones who serve Jesus Christ, who know Jesus but he doesn't just declare this. Notice what else he says. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. If you go through the book of Isaiah, you'll read about all of this destruction that's coming on God's people because they've wandered and they've disobeyed. And yet you get to chapter uh, 45 or chapter 49 or even chapter 60 that I read earlier. And you see that God's going to reverse the fortune. That all these nations that were destroying his people will eventually be destroyed. And instead all their wealth, all their people are going to come into the people of God and see God for who he truly is. Do you see what Jesus says? He flips the whole thing on his head. He says the people of God, the Jews, thought that the nations were going to come to them. Instead, it's the nations who know Jesus, and it's them who are going to come to you and bow down at your feet. It's them who are slandering you, who are talking evil of you, who thought that they were better. That Isaiah was actually talking about. It's actually the church of God that will experience this reversal. So if you're feeling discouraged, or you're wondering, or you're doubting, or you don't know what's going on, Christ is coming. He's saying the tables are going to be reversed, it's going to be flipped. Don't worry, you're not on the wrong side of history. How often do we hear that today? It feels like if I'm following Jesus, I'm on the wrong side of history. And Jesus comes and he says, don't worry. When all is said and done, if you followed me, you will forever be on the right side of history. <coughs> you will be honored because you followed me. So church, we've got to encourage one another. Because man, it's hard to live for Christ, isn't it? It's hard when you have people in your life who hate you for following Christ. It's hard to wake up in the morning, isn't it? It's hard 
to interact and people just think you're crazy that you're spending time here this morning hearing from God. It's hard when you share the gospel with that family member, that friend, time and time and time again, and they're just looking like you are crazy, out of your mind. And you're thinking, should I even continue? Yeah, in the middle of that, Jesus just says, tables will be so you and I have got to come together. We've got to encourage each other and remind each other that what we're seeing is not the end of the story. I mean, come on. College football just started this past week, right? If you're team one, you're like, this is awesome. Let me just tell you, there's about 10 more weeks. If you're a Penn State fan, there's about like six more weeks. And you'll lose that one game to that terrible team. Right? Every year. I'm not trying to be mean, but it's reality. Let's not look at what we see now, but zoom out to all of eternity and realize Jesus wins. We need to encourage each other, help each other to follow Christ. If I'm honest, the last couple of months have been incredibly Yeah, there's been a family here in this church who has ministered to our souls in ways that we will never be able to repay. They just loved us. They allowed us to come and cry with them and pray with us. They've been there for us. Church, that's the kind of community that we should be. The kind of community that we're able to go to one another and say, "I need you right now." Can you hold me up? Because notice the second promise then that Jesus gave. That's the promise of shielding strength. Then middle of difficulty there's comfort. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, because you kept my word about patient endurance, because everything has been difficult for your life for following Christ, because you've been patient in the middle of that, you've endured, knowing that there's greater hope than what I see right now. Notice what he promises. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Test those who dwell in the earth. But, but this is a little bit strange, right? Because he's saying that if I hold fast to him, no trials. I'm confused. I don't know about you, I face trials. Does that not make me a follower of Jesus? Well, James 1 would tell us that trials do happen, and they happen to create in us a perseverance and an endurance which leads to joy and first year one would tell us that trials happen to test our faith to show what are we putting our hope in so trials do happen to christians so so what does he mean well again greg deal in his commentary just looks at this and says the trial that's coming is not the end time trial 
He's not talking about the future end of the entire world, but rather, look at verse 11, Jesus promises to this church that he's coming soon. We don't know how that happened, but to this church, he was coming soon. So this trial is particular to this church. But, come on, we all face trial, don't we? And just read the rest of the Revelation. There's a lot of trials before the end of the world. What is this trial? It's not a physical trial. It's a spiritual trial. It's a way in which Jesus is coming to them and saying, guess what? Trial is going to happen. I'm going to bring it. But I'm not going to bring it upon you. I'm actually going to protect you from the spiritual trial, the kind of trial where you make shipwreck of your faith, or, or the kind of trial that seeks to take you away from faith in Christ. Instead, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to protect you from that trial that's coming. As a, uh, when I was a kid, we had a, a dog who was incredibly loyal to us, and an incredible watchdog. She knew where the end of the property was. Like, we lived in town, not a big property. She knew where the barrier was on her own. We taught her, but she knew. And often, if you're just walking on the sidewalk, she didn't let you on the property. She didn't let you off the property. Even one time, a male person came up to our front door, and she was minding her own business, and they put the mail in, turn around, and she's got them strapped. Why? Because she's protecting us. She wanted nothing bad to happen. And Jesus is saying, if you hold fast, you might die in this life, but for all of eternity, I will keep you protected spiritually. I don't know of a greater promise than that. We might lose life, and yet Jesus is saying, no matter what happens around you, no matter how many people turn away from you, no matter how hard life gets, if we just rest in Jesus and trust that he is good and find our refuge in him, he will guard us and protect us. Then he shows us the final promise, that his promises of superior strength. That there's nothing in this world that can match his strength and this promise that now he continues, that, that he'll continue forever. So, so we see that, that we need to rest in his sovereign care and strength and, and the response is for us to hold fast. And yet if we hold fast, he's going to reverse the roles in the end. And he's going to guard us against spiritual uh, uh, against spiritual shipwreck of our faith, and he's going to help us to persevere until the end, until we see this final end that he shows us. Verse 11, he promises to this church that he's coming soon, and he tells them to hold fast. Again, maybe it's a trial for them. Just read the rest of Revelation and you realize that there's trials coming for you and I too if we follow Jesus. So the same promise to them is given to us. He says, 
hold down what you have. Church, if you believe in Jesus Christ, hold fast to that. I told you weeks ago about uh, my horrific journey rock climbing. I had a harness, I had all these other things to keep me in place. But the moment I got like three feet off the ground, I, I was terrified. I clung to those rocks in the wall. We need to cling to the rock of Jesus Christ. We need to put him first. Do you put him first? In your life, above everything else, do you put him first? And so often, uh, I'm tempted, I'm sure you're tempted. Late at night, you want to rest? I just put on a show. Just to let me just kind of calm down and relax. Just put on a show and you go to bed later and the alarm goes off the next morning. What do you say? Good sleep. Or maybe you have self-control and you get up, but you're groggy, 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 your mind's foggy. You're trying to read the Bible and you're looking at the words and it just doesn't make sense to you. Because the night before we held fast to our temporary comforts rather than Invite Satan to already have some inroads in our life. Eroding us and holding us fast. Might we be a people who hold fast? Look at our life and say, that is going to kill me or kill my faith. Gone. Notice what happens if you do. No one will see you. You know, back in the uh, 2,000 years ago, they would have the Olympic Games, kind of like today, and whoever got first would get this crown, right? And Jesus is saying that if you hold fast to him, you will win, you will be victorious, and you will get a crown that nobody can take from you. There's no disqualifications. There's no one who beats the record, there's no one who overcomes. The reality is, is that that is your crown of victory forever. So much so in verse 12, notice what he says next. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, what's, what's the temple? It's just God's presence among his people. And he's saying that if we hold fast to Christ, he's going to make us part of the pillars that are holding up the presence of God for all of eternity. Did you know that that's what we are created for? Genesis 1 tells us that we're made in the image of God to be flashing billboards to the entire world. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. And now for all of eternity, if we hold fast, we're going to elevate the presence of God be a pillar to his presence, proclaiming how amazing he is, and then he promises that no one will go out of his temple. You're not going to be there one day, and then gone. Oh, man, I made a mistake. 
Well, it's all wiped away. You're there forever. You're, you hold fast, and he holds fast to you. You're never traded. You never retire from that kind of job. You never get fired. This is the most stable thing we could ever imagine. It's to be in the presence of God, being part of the pillar and the temple of God. Not only does he promise that we will never grow out of it, but notice he promises that he's going to write the name. Jesus will write the name of his God on us. We are going to be identified with God forever. The city wanted to be identified with Caesar. I don't know how many historians are in here this morning, but where is Caesar Tiberius? Probably in the ground, right? If he hasn't decomposed. They wanted a name of someone who had died. We will be given a name of someone who is Never God. Not only a name of God, but also the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down uh, from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We are getting an entirely new identity with Jesus Christ, with the Father. All we need to do is just trust and hold fast to Jesus. And victory's ours, church. Victory's ours. We get to trust and build our life upon that. And so when the world comes around and begins to question you, maybe even begins to deride you and belittle you for following Jesus, are you going to be tempted? Are you going to give in to present names? present reputation, present comfort, or are you going to hold fast knowing that there's an eternal name, an eternal comfort, an eternal city, an eternal worship of the one true God waiting for you? You just trust the name of Jesus Christ. And have eternal life. Father, we thank you for your encouragement again and again and again and again. Though the world may fight against us, though those even close to us may speak ill of us, and if we hold fast to your word and hold fast to God, there is victory. So, Father, we confess. There have been many times, maybe even this week, that we did not hold fast to your word and your word. We were more concerned about our own. So, Father, we confess that and we ask that you would grant to us forgiveness, grant us eyes to see your name is God. Your way is God. And that we might trust in you. Oh, thank you.